Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. And as I say every week, this is a very special episode. But for real, for real, this one is like for real, for real special, because I am talking with none other than the Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed clinical psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, who has created a platform that not only saves us, but helps us save ourselves and has rooted such a gorgeous community in what feels like freedom, that it is a blessing to start this year and to start this I don't know, this season of our lives with the book that Dr. Joy has brought into the world, Sisterhood Heals. Welcome, Dr. Joy, to the Stitch Please podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Lisa. I love a beautiful introduction. Well, it was easy to do because you have created something that is like a fountain. It's, 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 it's a book. But it's not a book to be read. It is a book to be savored. That even in preparing for the interview, I went back and it was like I was in graduate school again. I got all these tabs and underlines and highlights and questions and arrows. And it was because the book took me through a journey. And I wanted to start our conversation today with, in terms of formulating the book or the idea for the book, what was the first step for you in that journey? Mm-hmm. So, Lisa, I don't know if you've heard this story before, but Sisterhood Heals was actually designed to be an in-person experience. Um, so the community had been asking for like an in-person activity, or like a conference kind of thing. And so we were planning to do that in 2020. And then, of course, we know what happened oh, <laughs> in 2020. Right, right. So we were hoping. So Sisterhood Heals was the name of what the event was going to be. And so, of course, after we were in the pandemic, I had a conversation with my literary agent about, well, what were you planning to cover that weekend? Like, what did you want that weekend to be about? And so through conversations with her, it actually became the outline for the book. It follows an outline of what I wanted to have happened that weekend, but not closely, right? Because clearly all that's in the book could not have been covered in a weekend, but it really kind of captures the spirit of what I would have liked to have happened in that in-person event, which is conversations about sisterhood, a celebration of who we are to one another, but also some gentle challenges about how we could be better to and for one another. I'm so glad you explained that because it helps me to better understand why the book feels so enveloping. My reading experience was one of feeling as if I was being held. There were so many points where you were able to direct our attention to how Black women and sisterhood itself became a a necessary strategy. Mm-hmm. A necessary yeah. thing for our own, not just survival, but thriving. And mm. 
you don't shy away from the difficult things. And I will, I want to get to that when, in the course of this conversation, but I want to just look really quickly, y'all on page, um, on page XV, that's page 15 in the Roman numerals as part of a delightful introduction. Um, I'm going to do a terrible job reading this because I am not Dr. Joy, but she talks about sisterhood as such a vibrant life force for black women. It is sacred. And it, as such, it is important for us to pay attention to the things that make it difficult and do a better job of navigating those challenges so that it can continue to be what we need to get through the world together. And it's that even that one sentence just made me feel like I am in good hands. I knew that already, but there was something about that sentence. Can you talk a bit about how the transformation from you wanted this to be an event, but it also feels like it's such a beautiful, almost consolidation of the Therapy for Black Girls project as a whole. So can you talk just a bit about the angle of the whole project that you've created and how you're helping us to hold one another, both in accountability mm -hmm. and love? Yeah. So I think, you know, the book cannot be divorced from the time at which I wrote it, which was in the pandemic. Right. And so, you know, while sisterhood has been important and I do really feel like has been the foundation of all the things that we have done at Therapy for Black Girls. It feels like at the time I was writing the book, we were all kind of in a tizzy. Right. Like we didn't really know what was happening. You know, everything felt really anxious. But even in that there were so many beautiful examples of sisters stepping up for one another, right? So there were no shortage of, you know, GoFundMes and people going to get medicine for sisters in their neighborhood and like doing Zoom daycare sessions with the kids in the neighborhood. Like just all of these ways that we already knew that Black women typically show up for one another, we were seeing in real time. And I think it became more magnified because at the same time, we were also seeing all these systems that I think maybe many of us thought would be there to save us. We realized that like we really are all we got, right? Like when we say like we all we got, I think the, the pandemic really showed us that in real time. And so the, the book really is, I think, I always say an attempt to give language to that thing that I think often feels really hard to give language to that happens between Black women, right? Like we kind of know it, I think, you know, um, in some ways, but it, it has often felt intangible and like really difficult to put into words. But I really felt like it was important for there to be words, right? Like as a psychologist, I know that this thing that happens with Black women is something that needs to be documented, that there needs to be some kind of theory, some kind of language, some kind of like, okay, if it's in a book, then I can point to this as actual and factual. And so the book really is an attempt to kind of give some grounding and to give some language to this thing that I think we often do so naturally, but also, again, an invitation to how we can lean more into sisterhood to be a healing space for us. I am so moved by this because in many ways, the story of Black Women's Stitch is the story of Sisterhood Heals. It is the story of recovery from racial justice organizing and white supremacist terrorism and all of these things. And for me, as, as someone who was reading it, I just felt like even though I did not have this book at the time of that experience, that I do have 
this experience. And it just mapped on so beautifully that it made me realize that what you've created is equipping. It is a resource. And so I thank you for, you know, you talked just a bit about the citational practice. Someone needs to cite this book or someone needs to refer to it or whatever, but it also needs to exist as an affirmation and a guide and a sign of possibility. And that's another like really powerful element of this work. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of the the ways that we can build community. I think that's something that a lot of people um, are very interested in. I consider Black Women Stitch a, a community and trying to, you know, to cultivate this and to to grow and to develop events and to do all these other elements. How do you advise folks who are looking to find community to help to build it, to help ask the questions, to find folks of common interest? Yeah, I mean, if there is something around you, then I definitely would encourage you to activate what's already there, because I think sometimes we make the mistake of like going out to look for something that is already kind of around. Um, So I typically encourage people to look at the foreground of their lives, because there could be people already in the foreground that with a little bit of work you could bring to the, the I mean, look in the background to bring them to the foreground, right? So maybe there's a mom that you see in the carpool line? Are there somebody who sits next to you in yoga, right? Like, can you take the step to say like, hey, can we grab a smoothie after class? Or, hey, do you want to get breakfast after we drop the kids off, right? Like sometimes it requires us to take some steps that we may feel a little uncomfortable about, right? Because nobody wants to be rejected. But if you want to get something different, then sometimes you have to make different choices. So I definitely would encourage that. But I also think That social media is just a beautiful way to like tap into the things that you're interested in. Right. So just like you have Black Women Stitch. I mean, like I have Therapy for Black Girls. Like there's so many communities and things that Black women have created and kind of offered to us that anything that you are interested in, you are likely able to find a Black woman who has started some kind of community or some kind of thing for other people who like those things to also be a part of. And so just spending a little bit of time searching on Instagram through hashtags and stuff like that or Facebook groups can be a great way for you to kind of just meet other people that are interested in the kinds of things that you are. I love that. I think that is that is so rich. And it also lets us to kind of look around, like you said, where we are, the things we're already doing and look in Mm -hmm. a different direction. It doesn't require like a radical life revamp in in order to do these things. You do such a wonderful job of setting up scenarios that allow us to think about, huh, what would I do? And this is a question that came up because as I was reading, there was a group of friends and they were very much team no new friend. And (laughs) then a new friend brought one of their friends around. And then like the woman was like, I don't know if I even want to go around with these people because why she got to come? I don't even know her like that. And I love how you don't shy away from these problems uh, because it somehow it feels like if you have problems in your relationships or in your friendships, your relationships are broken or wrong. What does it mean to help us see and identify these troubles and how to develop ways through them? 
Yeah, you know, Lisa, I I think that we are far too quick to kind of like cut people off or like you said, to think that if anything's trouble, that means this relationship is not worth it. Right. But the truth of it is that we are all human. We're not robots as magical as black girls are. We're not actually superhuman. Right. And so that means we bring in all of our baggage, all of our stuff, all of our history. We're bringing all of that to our relationships with one another. And I think that we could do a better job of offering grace to one another and not shying away from the difficult conversations. Like the first sign of trouble does not mean that the relationship needs to end. It may just be an opportunity for you to say like, ouch, this thing hurt. And can we talk about it? Right. So that example of, you know, no new friends and like somebody works with somebody and they're like, oh, I think my girls would love you. I'll bring you to happy hour. Well, you got to give people a heads up about that, right? Because who is this person and why is she here in our sacred space, right? (laughs) You know, and so I I don't think that it is the case of them not necessarily wanting to maybe get to know her, but it's the fact that you didn't really set her up for success, right? So could you say, hey, there's this cool girl that I work with. I'd love to be able to invite her in two weeks. I think you all would enjoy her. And then giving them the opportunity to say like, oh yeah, sure, bring her or I don't know about that, right? And then you all can have a conversation about it. But if you take away people's option to actually have a conversation about it, then you are making it less likely that they are going to welcome her kind of into the fold. You are so right. I think this whole interview could just be like, yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And then like, just repeat that over and over. Um, I don't have to say any other, no no transitions necessary. (laughs) The answer is always Dr. Joyce, obviously right. (laughs) But I think it's the discomfort and the idea that when you talk about sacred, and thinking of sisterhood as sacred, there are some ways that some want a sacred experience that is also trouble free. Mm. And that sacred doesn't necessarily mean that. How does the sanctity or the sacredness of a sisterly space accommodate challenge or difficulty or expansion or contraction? Like, how does that show up and maintain that sacredness, because it seems Mm -hmm. as though it's made sacred by the people who are participating. It doesn't just exist sacredness by itself. So I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, I I honestly think that the ability to withstand some discomfort and challenge is what makes it sacred and what, what adds to the sanctity, right? So I think in sisterhood, it is one of those places where we can kind of practice being the more prickly, what I call prickly versions of ourselves, right? So those parts of ourselves that we don't even want to admit, you know, the parts that we know we can be a little clingy or we can be a little annoying or whatever. Like our relationships with other Black women are often where we can kind of practice what that behavior feels like to other people. And then to maybe get some feedback about, hey, that's kind of annoying when you do that, but that doesn't mean I don't love you still, right? And so I think that, you know, being able to kind of be all of who we are in relationships with other sisters is what really allows for that sacredness, right? Because it is this idea that I can be all of who I am and I may aggravate people, I may annoy people, they may even be mad at me, but that doesn't mean they don't love me. And so I think that, you you know, it's a good sign when there's conflict, right? That means that people are invested enough to, to disagree with you, right? If it is only a situation where you're always agreeing and everything is, you know, hunky-dory, so to speak, then is there really space for growth in that kind of a relationship? That's so powerful because I think wholeness is an essential part for me of liberation. Mm -hmm. It's too often that Black women find our lives fragmented. 
Yes. You know, into either our roles like a wife, mom, you know, professional sister, you know, whatever, but also just, you know, the things that impact the, you know, patriarchy, for example, damages us as women. Um, mm-hmm. White supremacy damages us as as black people, you know, like these things that show up and it's really difficult to shoulder shoulder the burden of it or to thrive through it if you aren't whole. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of us bringing our wholeness to each other, I think that's another one of the elements of the sacredness. And I do love how the book Sisterhood Heals advocates for us to be made whole through one another. And that you have this beautiful, I think it's a line from um, Gwendolyn Brooks, and, and she talks about we are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's mad magnitude and bond. Um, y'all mm-hmm. read y'all some Gwendolyn Brooks. This, she's wonderful. She's one of my favorites. Read Maud Martha. I'll put a link in the chat. It's a novella. You got to read it. It's like her only novella. She wanted to pull it. Anyway, back to track. <laughs> Tell us a bit about what it means to be each other's magnitude. Like that's, you know, we are each other's burden and magnitude. There was something about the gravity of magnitude as a word there that I think your book really reflects. It reflects Mm -hmm. a magnitude. Can you share a little bit about what you think that quote means and why you used it to start that section of the work? Mm -hmm. Well, one, I just love that quote. That is also one of my favorites. Um, And I think it's so true, right? Like, I, I think that there is no denying like the power that happens when Black women come together. And so this idea that we kind of need to operate in silos and like, okay, you do your stuff over there and I do my stuff over here. Like, we don't get anywhere further if we are not actually invested in each other's health, each other's wellness, each other's lives. And we know that we go further together. And so this idea that, you know, we need to be separate and like not actually kind of involving ourselves with each other, I think is is not accurate. Um, and we know that that is not historically how we have survived, right? Like there is a reason there is such a rich history of Black women's relationships with one another. And I don't think that if it's not broke, then we don't need to fix it, right? And so how can we continue with this rich history of really being able to show up with one another, show up for one another, especially again, in light of, you know, the, the all these systems that are not actually working in our favors, right? Like there is just mm-hmm. so much work left to be done, so much care that needs to be given. And I think that we are the only ones in a lot of ways who are equipped to be able to do that with and for one another. And thinking about some of the the responsibilities, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of those, the challenges. I think part of it is you do such a beautiful job talking about our cultural conditioning, the ways that um, Black women are, many of us have, a, speaking for myself, a, a certain type of loyalty, um, a certain type of belief that we don't want to do anything because of our corporate identity, the, the group identity. I'm, I think you used, you used the word for it that I don't think I ever knew before that talk about how black women, you know, or black people in general don't want to make the race look bad. Or, you know, like if one person does something good, it's like, oh, good for that one person. But if one of us does something bad, it's all of us, you know? Right. Um, and so I'm wondering like how, we get past that toward the healing 
to be able to say, as you said, this is difficult or this is painful, or when we feel disappointed in our sisters, when we feel like you're not someone who's interested in community, you think of community as a commodity. And, you know, now, like you had that wonderful story about that poor poor woman who had really loved this woman, this sister, and admired her work and Mm -hmm. just had some questions about her you know, 9999 program that she was selling and lady went off on her and then took her post as an example. And this why y'all ain't gonna never make no money because you don't want to pay nothing. You know, like, okay, girl, now I'm really glad I paused on that. But sometimes we get disappointed. How do you advise us to kind of get to go through that or to manage Mm -hmm. that? Yeah, so I think we have to first be okay with like, honoring the disappointment, right? Because I think what often happens is that we feel these feelings that feel shameful, right? Like, oh, I shouldn't feel that way about another Black woman. But it's okay. Like, feelings are just information, right? So it's okay to feel however you're feeling. What really is the issue, though, is then what do you do with those feelings, right? So we can allow for space to be disappointed and to check in with ourselves, I think, about What's actually coming up for me in this moment, right? Because when we see these kinds of reactions that are disproportionate to the thing that has happened, usually there's an indication that something else is going on. And I think we can only get to that if we are quiet and still and actually sit down with ourselves to say, why am I disappointed here? And then what can I do about it, right? So I typically think that like social media posts and like going public with these kinds of things are typically not at least the first response um, because you probably have not sat down with yourself long enough to kind of work through whatever is happening. But going to your trusted group chat or talking with a therapist about it, about what is coming up for you can actually help you to kind of figure out, okay, what needs to be happening here? And I think on the other side, if you are somebody who has seen community as a commodity, I think you also need to check your to kind of think about how you are weaponizing this thing that we know Black women readily and loyally kind of give, right? Like we will ride until the wheels fall off for a Black woman's business. But does that mean then as the business owner, you get to discard this community when they are of no use to you anymore, right? Like I think as Mm -hmm. a Black woman who is building a business that is like catering to Black women, you do have a different code of ethics. I think that you just do because you can't want to use community when it is in your advantage and then want to just, dis, dis, you know, kind of discard the community when they try to hold you accountable. It's like you can't you can't have both. So either make a product that everybody can use. And if the black girls get on, then fine. But don't use us as a way to kind of build your business and then say, like, OK, I've made my millions now, like I'm off to the next thing. Like, I think you do. You do have a different level of responsibility when you are building a business that caters specifically to Black people. I could not agree more because, as you said, that we have a really strong loyalty, especially to brand and products. I was talking to my sister about this and it's like, you know, we use Tide because my mama used Tide. You know, that's what we use. And then she, then she, Lord, then she switched to gain and it was a bit of a crisis. And I was like, well, I guess now we use gain. we use gain now. And, and Legit, we all, me and my sisters all use game because mama started using game. And clearly, mm-hmm. I mean, who's not going to do what she's doing? Like what? So it right. was, it's, a, I think that you're, you're so right about that. Mm-hmm. 
I wanted to pivot to talk a bit about creative liberation. And this brings us back to some of the sewing and crafts elements. And um, as quiet as it's kept, you did sew something. You have sewn. I, I'd love to know I more if you have a sewing. I would love to know Dr. Joy's sewing story. This is, I'm sure, what everybody's <laughs> really excited for is, um, yes, she wrote this really great book. It's bestseller. It's amazing. It'll change your life. But that do you sew, though? Um, that's what they're going to be asking. <laughs> so um, I did bet her beforehand, friends. She did make a skirt in middle school or a tote bag or something. So she's got some <laughs> bona fides. But tell us about your, your sewing story such as it is. You're among friends. It's a safe space. We, we tapped into this when you were a guest on Therapy for Black Girls, but your story really reminded me of taking home economics in high school. So in ninth grade, um, we had home economics and one of the units was sewing. And so we made this pair of boxer shorts that I think probably fell apart, you know, within like three washes. But it was enough for me to be able to like stitch enough so that I remember my dad had a hole in a t-shirt or whatever. And I stitched it up with like green thread on a white t-shirt, which was hilarious. But one of my fondest memories of sewing is not necessarily my own. It is my grandmother's. Um, so I remember, so I, I'm from Louisiana. I talk about that all throughout the book. Um, the men in my family are historically welders. And so, you know, I remember oh. many nights. Yeah. My grandmother like up patching up my uncle's jeans because like, you know, they had been on the ship or whatever and had gotten a hole in the jeans. And so she would always be doing all this stitching and patching up um, jeans. And so I do come from a family of people who have done some sewing. And I remember my mom made me um, my favorite Halloween costume, maybe in like third or fourth grade. It was a Raggedy Ann costume that I loved oh, so, so much. Yeah. So I come from a family of sewists, but I have not necessarily like gotten back into that. But I do enough to be able to like put a button back on my kid's jacket or, you know, something like that. <laughs> That's great because I hate putting buttons. My kids be buttonless because I hate that. I'm like, oh, <laughs> That's why no, my favorites so is actually boring. buttons. I can do all right with it. <laughs> I, too, too bad you don't live closer, friend. Too bad. I'm like, you know what? Right over to Dr. Joy. She love putting buttons right, on stuff. She'll put that button back on. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. My poor spouse, he, they got to go out and get their... I'm like, oh, these pants need to be hemmed. I'm like, you know what? Cleaners is only $12. I, you got $12? I will... And they'll do it for you. I certainly don't yeah. want to. One of the things I love about it is that the act of sewing is so, one thing that I'm arguing is... As Audre Lorde talks about in her, you mentioned this as well, that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Um, and mm -hmm. so I've developed this idea that sewing is an example of something that is antithetical to master's tools. Anything can be co-opted, but the needle and thread has been consigned to a realm of service um, that the master, quote unquote, doesn't deploy. He might control it, but doesn't doesn't do it themselves. And so yeah. it feels like a liberatory act to just um, to put almost like putting pen to paper, you know, to kind of to write mm -hmm. something, to express something. I feel that way about needle and thread and fabric and, you know, creating something that was not there before. It did not exist before I made it, you know. Mm -hmm. And so there's something I think inherently healing in some ways about sewing. And you see this a lot in the sewing community. There are t-shirts and slogans and sewing is my therapy. And I'm like, whoa, that is so inappropriate. Uh, <laughs> let us, let's say, and 
I, but really, Dr. Joy, and I guess one of the things I might ask is about when you talk about therapy for black girls, it really puts therapy right up front. You know, mm-hmm. and there has been in the past a historic reluctance um, among some black communities. I'm not going to say all black, but some black communities, um, especially some religious ones who have been kind of, no, 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 no. Th- therapy is not something we we need or would do or whatever. And you've done a powerful job dismantling that myth with mm-hmm. this project. Can you talk a bit about the ways that we might use creative expression, use art, use drawing, use piano, use music, use how, the things that we do that might not bring us money, but they bring us pleasure? How does mm-hmm. that serve a therapeutic function without being like, this is the only thing I'm going to do to heal my mental health? Right, right. Yeah, I, I love those T-shirts and slogans, right? And I, I often get a good laugh at those things, too, because they are therapeutic, right? Like sewing can be therapeutic, running can be therapeutic, but it is not necessarily the same thing as therapy, right? It's not replacing a relationship with a licensed mental health professional where you are talking about things, unpacking all of those things, but it is still important. And to your earlier point, Lisa, you know, there has been a reluctance to embrace like mental health and therapy, and rightfully so, right? Like we cannot deny the white supremacy and like the historical functions of our field. But I think what has been so important to me and really critical for me to do with therapy for black girls is to talk about like how we have come from that history, but this is still for us, right? Because we know that even though we weren't calling people therapists in our ancestral communities, we know that there have always been healers in our community, right? And so therapy in the way that we do it now is just, I think, a continuation of the things that our ancestors started. So even though it did not start from us, we know that healing has always been our birthright and that healers have always been in our communities. And so therapy for Black girls really has been, I think, a really cool way to kind of talk about, okay, there is mental illness, right? Like, let's talk about the signs of depression, the signs of anxiety, you know, what it's like to take medication. But let's also talk about all these other things that we can do to actually take care of our mental health. Because I think for a long time, people have only thought about mental health as like the avoidance of illness, as opposed to Mm. let's pay attention to our sleep hygiene, right? And like, how does sleep impact our mental health? Let's talk about like movement and how, you know, our endorphins, you know, get through the roof when we go for a nice long walk or what does it mean to be in community and to have close friendship relationships and how that's also a really good thing to buffer us from stress. So there are all these different things that I think that are really, really critical to our mental health. And that's really what therapy for black girls has been about is to be able to kind of explore all of those things that we don't necessarily think about when we think about mental health. And I really appreciate the way that you think about health and wellness. We don't have to think about it in an extreme like, oh, someone's had a break or, you know, something like that. That it's just that healing is all wholeness and wellness. All of these things are things that belong to us by right. Another thing that's so wonderful about the book in this context is you are creating a practice in the book itself that will allow, I think, future clinicians as well as like, just readers like myself, it is equipping them as well. You have built by the ways that you cite other Black women throughout this book. You dropping, you know, Patricia Hill Collins um, and Evelyn Higginbotham and like all of these, you know, the historians and you are creating And as we have in ourselves, you are creating that which should have been there for us, but never was because we weren't seen. 
And yet again, you are proving that we have already been there in these fields of health and wellness and psychology. And we have contributions that are utterly unique and necessary that allow us to to build what we need. And you have done that so just so beautifully throughout this book. Were there any parts of it, of the writing process? I'd love to hear more about that as someone who is finished starting a book right now. Um, what are some of the parts that were challenging for you? Did you ever get, to, so you seem to have had an already really robust outline because you had this event um, that was going to happen. So you were able to kind of have that be like a scaffold and build things around it. But what when it came down to put pen to paper or to sit in front of the laptop or however you write, was there any challenges or things that came easier, things that you kind of had to sit with a little longer? You know, honestly, Lisa, the whole process was really difficult um, just because it was a new thing, right? Like I kept trying to equate it to writing my dissertation, which was the only framework I had for like writing mm-hmm. something of this magnitude. And it clearly is very different from a dissertation because your dissertation isn't necessarily meant to be like entertaining and like enjoyable. Right. It's like it's research. Exactly. Right? It's got, yeah. Five people yeah, are going to so, read that. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. The people on your committee and maybe your mom and them, like, you know, a grand total of seven. (laughs) Maybe. My my mama did not read mine. I tell you that much. (laughs) Yeah. So it it was really a difficult process because I was trying to do something very new. Um, And I also am somebody who like. I'm not super flowery in my language. And I think a lot of that is like being trained Mm. as a psychologist to like write a certain way and like, okay, these are the facts. Like you don't need to add too much like interpretation. And so it was really hard for me to kind of make a book that like, I feel like people would really get in like the storytelling and, you know, that kind of thing. So I actually worked with a writer, Tracy Michelle Lewis Giggitz, who really helped me to kind of like pull the story pieces out of it. Right. Um, To make it something that people would actually, actually enjoy reading. So I I think that the storytelling piece was a little more difficult for me. And I also was really worried, Lisa, as a podcaster, if my voice would translate Mm. on the page. So, you know, I think that people have an expectation of like who Dr. Joy is when they hear me on the mic or like if I'm doing a a speaking engagement, right? Like I think that there is a warmth that I convey and I was really worried that that would not translate on the page. Um, And so I have been, it is always such a pleasure to get feedback from readers that they do feel like it translated because that probably was my biggest worry um, was that like, I wouldn't get the tone right and like it would feel too scholarly or people would be like, oh, this doesn't sound like Dr. Joy. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad to hear that it did translate in that way. It absolutely did. And there's also a built in cheat code, which is listening to the audio version. The audio book. Because when I, te- <laughs> yes. when I tell y'all, I believe that Dr. Joy Harden Bradford sat down one day and read me this book over the course of two months because it's, I, it, it, you know, you're in our ear with, on the podcast, you know, but like to have you like give this long, this, this it's a rather, I think about seven hours worth, I think seven mm-hmm. hours long. It really, or maybe eight, it's a really, it's such a gift. And I, there's a, there's a, there's a way in Audible which is what I used to do audiobooks that you can make tabs. You can like make clips. You can tab, tap the thing and like add a note or tap the clip and then you can go back and listen to it. I got about like 40 clips. 
of like things I that I want to go back. I did not know that there I'm was like, a feature in Audible. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yes. Okay. It's so it's it's like I'm I'm absolutely going to show you because I'm a fangirl because like it was <laughs> I was looking because you can go back and look at all your bookmarks and you can manage your mm-hmm. clips and it has these little I've got like oh wow all of these things that it's like oh yeah let me that's a good one I might ask about that like I, I don't think I ask about any of them I'm gonna have to uh, call you on the phone <laughs> but um the 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 thing I was I was excited about was indeed like it really is feeling like we have you with us you know mm-hmm. and the warmth the joy the the happiness in your voice all of that translated I think incredibly well to the page and the the audio is just such a, a, a another version, another version of that. Mm-hmm. Throughout writing the book, what did you learn? Do you have some key learnings that you've gotten either from finishing the book, turning it in, saying, okay, I released this now, I've done it, or key learnings from getting feedback from readers and listeners that's giving you something that you really cherish? I will say the key feedback or the key piece of, you know, learning that I've gotten from finishing the book was that I can actually do hard things, Um, you know, because I definitely had some imposter syndrome stuff kicking in there. And it's like, you know, there was so many weeks of my therapy sessions dedicated to like book writing stuff. Like I feel like until I finished and then when it was time to market, it was like a whole new uh, slate of like new problems to talk about with my therapist. But I I didn't expect like so much of like my mental health necessarily to be wrapped up in the writing process but I definitely got in my head about like how are people going to receive it and you know like is it going to translate um so I think the the key piece that I take with me is that I can do hard things and then let it go and kind of let it be what it is um I think from the readers what I have learned is that people are expecting more right like people are like okay well this was great but when is the next one like what is what's happening I'm like oh my god y'all I don't know (laughs) I don't know like, if I got it great. in me now I got <laughs> Now I got four more sessions lined up with my therapist, something to talk about. Right. Now I got to talk about the the fear of failure is one thing, man. Oh, fear God. of success is quite something else. Oh my goodness. Exactly. That's what we're dealing exactly. with now. Oh, right, right. I really, it, it's, I feel like the paint is not yet dry um, <laughs> right. on this it on, ain't, on It's this only book. been like six it's like, months. <laughs> it's like, can I, can I please have just a teeny bit more time to rest, please? Please, can I get like three more yeah. months, just like a symbolic, just symbolically. Let's have nine months right. go by before we start thinking about <laughs> anything else. Just symbolically. Exactly. Uh, right. I was thinking, it's also really gratifying to kind of know or warming to know and daring to know that of course, I mean, so, yeah, I'm like sitting here like, Dr. Joy, do you know who you are? What you mean? Of course, I, I can do hard things. I'm like, you did, you know, go to graduate school and, you know, wrote a dissertation and had a practice and then built mm-hmm. something that's incredibly unique that is like, inim- it's inimitable. You know, it's completely new. It's novel. And I say inimitable because it's unique. But I think you also want people to be able to build these kind of things. I remember one of your episodes where a person was working on um, yoga and did a lot of like yoga events and they were going to, and it just felt like you are encouraging us to do hard things all the time, whether that's Mm. call that friend or maybe don't call that friend or, you know, you are always encouraging us to do hard things. So the idea that you are somehow like, hmm, this is hard. It just it, it, for me, that's like a big takeaway. Like, Doctor Joy be struggling with stuff. What? What's talking about? Absolutely, all the what? time. What? <laughs> 
Absolutely. But you know, Lisa, I think the difference to me here was that Therapy for Black Girls kind of was created by accident. Like I didn't sit down and say like, I want a business dedicated to like black women's mental health. Like I was kind of already doing that work and it kind of grew as an extension of that. But I think the book was something that was like, okay, I intentionally pitched this book. I said, I'm going to do this thing. And so it felt like one of the first things in a very long time that I said like, okay, I'm going to do this thing and then you got to finish it. So it felt like a very different process to me. Yeah, I, I can understand that. I can understand that. I think that looking at your story from a distance and seeing therapy for Black girls as, you know, a known entity, um, as something that is already doing thriving and healing work in the community, it's, you get a little spoiled. You feel like, oh, that's always been here. You know, <laughs> it's like it's well, it's, it's what it means to like what you've done is build an institution. And it really is so robust and necessary. And when, like in the chapter, you talk about sisterhood over systems, Mm. you know, and you have created in therapy for black girls, the podcast, the, the book, the sister circle um, community, the, you know, all of these things that you've already given us such powerful gifts and gifts that continue to equip us, you know? And mm-hmm. so I, it really becomes, I don't know, it's, 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 it's a rich opportunity and a rare gift to, to talk with you about your process. Yeah. Um, and that processes are currently always ongoing. And that we too are in the middle of a process. We too want something and to get there will be a journey and there will be steps to be taken. Um, Like Mm -hmm. that just, I don't know. I just feel like that's something that we, I think we sometimes get too accustomed to a before and after picture, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just the Mm -hmm. before. And then in about two seconds up comes the after you know, or before and now, but all that ugly middle and the uncertainty and the, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? All Mm -hmm. that's in the middle, you know? And so I, I just love how, um, in talking about your process a bit, you've given us the chance to, to think about our own processes. You close the book with sister acts with resources, Mm. um, for ways we can encourage our sisters. There are some really wonderful tips in there. Can you talk about why you thought it was important to end the book with a list of some kind of action items? Yeah, because I didn't want it to be a book that you just read and thought like, oh, that was cute. And then you just put it back on your shelf, right? Like I wanted it to be something that you then <laughs> were moved to act, right? And and I think that there's also a ripple effect, right? Like you sending your girl a cash app then means that in a month she might turn around and do that for somebody else, right? And so I wanted it to be a way that we could kind of continue to embody this spirit of sisterhood in a very tangible way. I love it. And I, I think that it was such a great, strong thing to end on. It gave me some ideas for like things to do. And also the way that you had so many different types of examples, like that people's love languages are different. Like some person, like a cash app is going to mean more to somebody than the flowers from Trader Joe's, you know, like, you know, it just, it, it, I think that that was really very powerful. I'm going to ask you the last question that we ask everybody on Stitch Please podcast. And it's this, the slogan of the Stitch Please podcast is that we will help you get your stitch together. Dr. Mm. Joy Harden Bradford, it is my honor to ask you, how would you help our audience get our stitch together? 
Ooh, this feels like such a good question. I think I would help you to get your stitch together by encouraging you to lean on the people in your circle. And if there is not a circle, to do a little bit more work to get a circle for yourself because we were not meant to do life alone. And it is so much better and so much sweeter with a circle of sisters around us. And with that, we are grateful to Dr. Joy. Thank you so much for being with us today. This has been a true delight. Oh, thank you so much, Lisa. It was such a pleasure. You've been listening to Stitch, Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you joining us this week and every week for stories that center Black women, girls, and femmes in sewing. We invite you to join the Black Women Stitch Patreon community with giving levels beginning at $5 a month. Your contributions help us bring the Stitch Please podcast to you every week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together. Hey friends, hey, I know you're enjoying the audio version of Stitch Please and thanks so much for listening. But you're missing out on all the great stuff going on behind the scenes. That's why I'm inviting you to join our Black Women Stitch Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you can see all the video versions of the podcast. Plus, you get some amazing swatch cards. You know how much I love these swatch cards. Look, look, see how cool these are? I... Oh, wait, you you can't you can't see them because you are not yet on the Patreon. So when you join the Patreon, you'll be able to see this me showing you these amazing cards. We also have some great perks at the other tiers like discounts, swag, office hours and more. Don't be the last sewist in the group now. Head over to patreon.com slash black women stitch or click the link in the show notes and become a Patreon supporter today. We truly cannot do this without you. So thank you so much.